Well, good morning. What a tremendous thing to remember the Lord. And here we are, week two on... uh, Well, listen, we're looking way back this morning. Don't forget, we're going way back today. I did a little history last week. I'm an old guy, I look back a lot, but this is way before this building was here. Way back before there was any physical foundation. You know, the foundation of the church is Jesus Christ. We're going way back to see how the early church witnessed where the foundation of the church universal, the body of Christ, and of course, the local church. We're in the book of Acts, and that's where we are, just to get your mind in place. Last week, Acts 7, we talked about Stephen. We're going to move to Acts 8 now. We're continuing to learn about being his witnesses. It's great. This chapter talks about personal witnessing, talks about large group evangelism, and this time it's from Philip. And it's troubled times. Don't think we're living in smooth days. This is a great chapter. It's about lessons on witnessing in troubled times, and it's from a fantastic character, Philip. You know, these two chapters I've done in this visit, Acts 7 and Acts 8, they actually describe very dark days for the early church. I mean, Stephen, last week, stoned to death. Now Saul's persecution, it's, it's reached new ferocity. And yet, you know, as I study this, chapter 8 turns out to be an incredibly encouraging chapter. I mean, this chapter is about an evangelism explosion. And it's about the way the church was beginning to do exactly what Jesus told them to do. I mean, you remember, just before Jesus, after that tremendous sacrifice that we've just remembered, just before he ascended to heaven, where he now reigns as king, he said to them, Acts 1.8, just sitting there on the mountain, you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, where they were, all Judea, Samaria, and Chris read this at the end of the service last week, the ends of the earth. And that includes a wonderful place called Oakville. Here we are. Now, prior to Acts 8, of course, the believers had remained in Jerusalem, and this chapter begins with the news, the apostles stayed there, brave men that they were, but because of that great persecution, we go from Acts 1.8 to Acts 8.1. Just help to remember it. And we read this, a great persecution broke out against the church. So the persecuted church scattered. It went all through Judea and Samaria. Hey, that was just the place the Lord wanted them to be. So here we are, persecution fulfilling God's purposes. I want to tell you this morning, because a lot of you are in some difficulty and you're worried about this turbulent world, God uses persecution and difficulties to fulfill his purpose. I can't believe how many times I've read about evil men and bad things being used by God to execute his plans. So here we are. Now, actually, you can tell from my accent that I grew up in England. 
I was a stalwart young man of 30 with a wife and two kids when I came to this wonderful country to teach at McMaster. But I brought some old customs with me. And one curious thing is, I had to have an English garden. And I'm a big fan of a green, weed-free lawn. I just, I gotta try, and it's so hard in our climate to get that, what you used to have in England, that English lawn. And you know, the biggest challenge in maintaining it is my back of the dandelions. The thing about dandelions is they produce hundreds of tiny seeds. And one little kick, one disturbance, one gust of wind, and these seeds scatter all across my garden. And they get in the most unlikely places. Being kicked and scattered, well, that's a good thing from the point of view of dandelions, because that's how they spread and grow. Now, that's what it was, being persecuted, kicked out of Jerusalem. That's what caused the New Testament to grow in the most unlikely places. I mean, soon groups of believers were springing up in Samaria, of all places, Ethiopia, of all places. So yes, I found chapter 8 about growth and blessing, coming to the church as persecution catalyzed significant progress, most encouraging, especially as I reflected on the fact that, it, that it's still happening today. Like martyrdom is, like I told you last week about people losing their life today for Jesus and for the gospel. And I think of places like China. China, where I've been several times, and, and, and when the church was hiding away in secret, but to ch- to, in China, the persecuted church is growing at a staggering rate. You go to some of the 50 million Chinese Christians and say, why do you believe? Oh no, talk about hope and the resurrection. So I want to encourage you today, don't be discouraged by this persecution because the Spirit of God is always at work when we witness. And and the Spirit of God can bring astounding blessing if we only like Stephen and Philip could witness boldly and faithfully. I want to give you another horticultural example I don't grow these in my garden because these beautiful flowers, they actually need drought and desert and harsh conditions to bloom and grow. And so much of Acts is about joy and hope and beauty and progress and growth springing in a troubled and hostile and difficult environment, terrible conditions. I mean, little did Saul realize, this is Paul before he was converted, his frenzied and brutal persecution, it was helping the gospel seed to spread when the believers were compelled by Paul's efforts to flee Jerusalem. What did they do? They take the gospel with them. So despite the circumstances, even death for Stephen, nothing could stop them because... They knew Jesus was alive, and they had the Holy Spirit. Now, I have to tell you, I had a lot of complaints last week from my old friends here. Why don't you do experiments? I said, my lab's closed. I don't have it. But I thought, well, I could try something. I had to. 
you like to buy a whole packet of baby diapers to get the chemicals to do this? And Jane and I spent a wonderful hour cutting open diapers. Because I wanted to show you. Now, what we got is representing the scattered church. See all these particles going in there? Scattered church. Just sinking to the bottom. Nothing doing. But, you know, one of the figures in the Bible of the Holy Spirit is water. I only got a bit of this stuff, so I didn't even try it out. But the Spirit of God poured forth on the church. And things happened. When the Spirit moves, not a drop lasts. Man, it all came together! Look, when the Spirit of God moves, the unity and blessing and it's just a tremendous example in Acts 8. Here's Philip, and he's telling you how to be a good witness for Christ in troubled times. Don't you want to do that? And it's great because it tells you not only about mass evangelism, I don't see too many Billy Grahams here, but it tells you about personal witness, about there. Now, you've got to remember about Philip, just, you guys know Acts well, he was one of the men selected in Acts 6. He was just a deacon with Stephen. They were just distributing food to the widows. That's important, of course. Don't want to downplay it. But like Stephen, Philip responded to the Holy Spirit, and, and he soon used his gifts to broaden his ministry. So he began to spread the gospel publicly and privately, even though Stephen had been killed. I mean, if my fellow deacon had just been martyred for witnessing, I might think twice. But you learn from, from verse 6, chapter 8, Philip carried on. And it's a good thing because he was a great communicator with Judah crowds. People listened to what he said. In fact, you learn from verse 7 that Philip was gifted in other ways. He was like the apostles. He was able to heal physically and preach effectively. So he was quite a character of spirit, not just a deacon. You know, he's a model for evangelism. You know, I, li I like to talk about uh, peanuts sometimes, and there's Sally, I guess it is. And she said, I would have made a good evangelist. She said, you know that kid that sits behind me in school? I convinced him that my religion is better than his religion. And Linus said, well, how'd you do that? She said, I hit him with my lunchbox. <laughs> now, I'm not recommending the lunchbox method of evangelism. Sharing your lunch, that could be a good idea. But, but it does raise a question. I mean, what does it take to make a good evangelist? Now, today I'm going to give you six key marks of an effective witness for Jesus Christ exemplified by Philip. I had ten last week from Stephen. I hope you noted them, because this is going to be 16 altogether. Mind you, somebody's over that, because the principles are so important, and I know you guys, sometimes you forget. And I'm at the age, you know, I'm trying to remember why I went upstairs. I, I sit on the memory foam mattress, hoping it'll help me remember. <laughs> so I know it's tough, but listen, six more. Uh, Marks of an effective witness from Philip. So are you ready for him? Get that seatbelt fastened, burning gear. Number one, I'll give you it right off the top. Very important. Philip was obedient and courageous. 
I mean, Stephen's death didn't deter him. I told you that. In fact, no amount of opposition could hold his fellow back. But I'll tell you how he showed courage and obedience, particularly it was his willingness to go to Samaria. It took courage to go to Samaria because it was a difficult place to go to. You might recall, if you know your Bible, that the Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. In fact, there was a thousand-year history of hatred and alienation between the Jews and the Samaritans. These two groups were at loggerheads because the Samaritans rejected most of the Old Testament. They only believed the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. And they rejected the temple in Jerusalem. They said, Mount Gerizim, that's where we should worship. So there were clashes between the Jews and Samaritans all the time. On one occasion, the Jews actually destroyed the temple on Mount Gerizim. And in retaliation, the Samaritans just went down and scattered bones in the Jerusalem temple right at Passover time because they wanted to pollute and desecrate the Jews' most holy place. So relations weren't big, weren't great. But Philip remembered Christ's example. If you're ever in doubt, think, what would Jesus do? That was a good little movement. What would Jesus do? He thought about that. He remembered the readiness of Jesus to talk to the Samaritans. You know John 4. Did he, want, he must go through Samaria. Jesus set the example. You know about the woman at the well. Great. I mean, people didn't bother preaching to women in those days. Terrible chauvinism. But Jesus went to the woman at the well. And Philip would remember Christ's call. You've got to reach out to them. And so Philip did what we must do. I mean, he simply, in obedience, put prejudice aside, all racial prejudice, and he recognized that real truth is a gospel for everyone. But Jesus died for the whole world. There's zero no-go areas when it comes to evangelism. Every human being is made in God's image, and Christ died for everyone. And this is so important, I'm going to come back to it later. So remember this. I want to move on to number two, but I'll be back about racial prejudice and the gospel being for everyone. But Philip was obedient and courageous. And what do we read in verse 8? Number two, Philip focused on proclaiming Christ. It says in verse 5, Philip proclaimed Christ. Look, I've got to tell you, but you notice that the gospel is totally about Christ. And Philip focused on the gospel. He avoided rehashing old controversies. I mean, he might have got into advocating the claims of the temple in Jerusalem. He's in Samaria. You think he'd have got into teaching how important the temple in Jerusalem was. Or maybe he should have been making a case for the validity of all the Old Testament scriptures. What a lesson for us. You see, it's so easy in our witness to get into peripheral issues, to get sidetracked from presenting what the gospel's about, Christ's finished work on the cross. What, the go- what, what witnessing to the gospel means is talking about the way Christ died for our sins so we can be saved not by works, but by his grace. That's what we're supposed to be talking about. We're preaching Christ, and that means focusing on his claims and his work, uh, telling how he reveals God to us, 
telling how he rose from the dead, how he gives eternal life to all who respond to his invitation to trust him. By the way, if you've never done that, take this seriously. Now, of course, Philip had to deal with the temple and, and believing the Old Testament. We'll come to that. But the point that I want you to get right now is false. You can do everything right. You can, I mean, in your own life, you can do everything right. But without Christ, you're still alienated. It's a big mistake. I can't show you this cartoon. I love this one. It's the two pirates out at sea. And the big guy says, I'm glad that stopping port went off without a hitch. And his little friend said, why? He said, well, he said, I've been messing up a lot lately. And I, I think the captain was looking at this visit as a test. His friend said, really? He said, yes, so in less than two hours, I got all the new ropes and sails. I replaced the cannon. I bought food. And now we're back at sea, skimming along to the far, far horizon. And his friend said, good for you, Nate. You passed the captain's test. And the big guy says, you're darn right I did. And, and what I'm tempted to do when the captain walks out here is to go up to him and look him straight in the eye and say, okay, Mr. Smiley, point to a mistake. And in the last frame, man, he's left the captain on the pier. He's got everything right, but he's made a big one. And, and I'm telling you, you can do everything right. But without Christ, it's, it's a fatal mistake. And that's what Philip realized. You look, look, Philip... There would be a more appropriate time after those misguided Samaritans had come to faith in Christ for him to deal with these other matters that did need further teaching. And by the way, a little sideline, you Bible students, I must mention this. The case of the Samaritans was unique because if you read this text in Acts 8, they didn't get the Holy Spirit immediately. They believed like the Gentiles normally did. The case of Cornelius, chapter 10 and 11. It's typical, it's normative. Cornelius, Cornelius received the Spirit on conversion before he was baptized. Just a little reminder, folks, you shouldn't build a, a requirement for some separate second blessing like some groups do on an exceptional case. You know my rule, I've told you, I've been coming here for years, Say, never let a scripture you can't understand Interfere with one you can understand. And Romans 8, 9 is perfectly clear. If anyone doesn't have the Spirit of Christ, they don't belong to Christ. Now, you can't misunderstand that. So, the Samaritan case was a special case. Why? Well, it, it, it involved waiting for the apostles to come from Jerusalem. It was special because the Samaritans needed to accept the authority of the apostles. But you can't build general cases on that. Ooh, what's going on here? Ooh, my sermon's trying to finish before I'm getting it. I'm sorry about that. You know, I got this um, stand that sometimes does this. Uh, did he get all that? I could just close in prayer. <laughs> <laughs> you see, this long-standing, let's get out, the long-standing repudiation of Jerusalem had to be given up. I mean, they had to recognize what Jesus told the woman at the well, that historically, salvation is of the Jews. And that's because of the lineage of Christ. 
So, yes, it's true that Samaritans, like all true Christians, needed to accept the authority of the apostles and the inspiration, in their case, of the Old Testament. But it wasn't their first priority. Christianity, you see, is rooted in real historical events. And it does depend on the authority of all Scripture. And for us, that means recognizing the divine inspiration of both the Old Testament and the New Testament. So we've got to teach the inspiration of the Bible. That's our authority. Without that, we've nothing to talk about. In the church and in personal life, true believers, well, they seek to do what the Word of God, the Bible, calls them to do. But Philip didn't get into the temple and why you have to believe the, the scripture inspired. He preached Christ, number one. And, and of course, a wonderful conclusion to Philip's mission to Samaria, we'll have to move on to the end of it just to get this point, is the wonderful conclusion is summarized in verse 8. There was great joy in that city. Just a reminder, the gospel brings joy even in troubled times. I mean, would to God that that we could see great joy in the cities of North America today because, oh, how much they need the gospel to experience the joy that Jesus brings into our lives. And I think of those Syrian cities, man, you couldn't imagine being further from joy than to be in a Syrian city today uh, and you're so far from knowing the gospel. And I'm telling you, we need to be exercised about this. You see, we've got to remember, we have the world at our door in Canadian cities, especially Toronto. And the challenge is clear. Can we do more to reach them with the transforming message of the gospel? Don't neglect that challenge. But I've got to move quickly to verse 26, because as well as personal witness, there was the dramatic story. Uh, I mean, the mass witness in Samaria, there was that dramatic story the conversion of the Ethiopian. And there's a very obvious lesson in this. Remember, Philip's in Samaria, great blessing. People coming to Christ, and then he gets this call. And number three, then, is to be flexible, always ready to follow God's leading. I mean, things were going so well for Philip in Samaria. He was seeing great blessing. And then verse 26 brings that surprising turn of events Philip suddenly directed in an angelic visit to go to the desert, to a road, a road to Gaza. Here he is again. He, dem- he demonstrates his courage and obedience. I love this. You get to a verse like this and say, yes. He said, well, he arose and went. That's, he arose and went. Now, another little aside here for you Bible students. Don't downplay the ministry of angels. You see, generally we don't see them and we neglect this, but Hebrews 1.14 says this, Angels are ministering spirits sent forth to serve for the sake of those who to obtain salvation. And here's a great example. Philip had an angel, uh, an angelic visit. But he doesn't ask for an explanation. I mean, you'd think he'd protest. Look, things are going well in Samaria. There's so much follow-up work to do. I got a lot of converts. I mean, you want me to go to this empty stretch of road? I mean, suppose he'd been like me, thinking, well, I'm kind of central to the work going on here, and uh, 
I don't want a chance damaging it by suddenly moving to some obscure unknown desert place. Because it's tempting sometimes to think that blessing depends on our efforts. I'll give you an example. Years ago, maybe 30 years ago, I lose track, 25, 30, long time ago, my home church, Bethany, was in Patchy. I mean, we were meeting on one side. There was no Sunday school. We had three elders. One never spoke at the elders' meeting. The other, the other never stayed on the topic. And it was me. <laughs> and I had got a chance to go on a big fellowship to the sabbatical leave to the University of Durham in England. It's a great opportunity. And I looked to the church. I said, I can't go. So I phoned my dad, a godly man in England. Well, I praise God for a godly party. I said, Dad, I can't come on the sabbatical. He said, why not? I said, I, I can't leave the church. They're in bad shape. He said, are you telling me that that church depends on you? I said, yes, I suppose I am. He said, go! He said, it's the Lord's work. It's the Lord. Look, the Lord can look after me. If you think it depends on me, go on your sabbatical. I went, had a great sabbatical. I came back. There's an Awana program started. There's people running around all over the place. A missionary came up back on fellow and God moved. And I thought about that when I was reading this and I thought from a strategic point of view, going away to Durham didn't seem like a wise move, nor did it seem wise for Philip to leave that great work in Samaria and move. But you see, Philip just did it because God called him to do it. I was a good boy. I went because my father said to do it, but Father in Heaven was right on side. You see, it's so important when we pray to the Lord to do some listening. Jane knows I'm a big talker. You see, I like to do the talking. She's working on me not to interrupt every conversation. Uh, but you see, and I'm doing better, but, but I learned in prayer that we need to listen to God so, so we can be sure that it's the Lord calling the shots. You see, it's important we realize that our sovereign God, God sometimes causes us to, to do strange and inexplicable things. And our responsibility is to follow the promptings of the Holy Spirit and not try to rationalize them. You see, Philip didn't know that God had prepared the situation, that he wanted to meet the need of this one seeking special man, and he knew Philip was the right man for the job, and he said, you go and help him find Christ. You know, we were driving to Florida two years ago. Jane drives from the passenger seat, and we're going along, and I'm saying, watch your speed. And then we heard this story of the guy going down I-95 in the States, of course, it's miles an hour. He's doing 130 miles an hour, and there's a traffic helicopter up there. And the traffic helicopter lets the sheriff know, and of course, in no time, the sheriff's down there pulls him over. He said, sir, you're doing 130 miles an hour. Oh, no, officer, I couldn't be going that fast. Well, he said, the, the man upstairs says so. Oh, he said, I've been a pastor for 30 years. If he said so, I did it. <laughs> and I thought, what a, what a lesson. If he said so, I do it. I mean, you can't miss it, can you? Oh, if only we could learn about personal one-to-one -one witness from Philip's response to God's prompting and go out of our way to meet that one person. 
You know, Vivian, as many of you know, was a, a credible woman, and she used to tell me to go and visit people. And I'd say, I'll go tomorrow. She'd go now. And I'd find, I'd get home, and 50 minutes later, they'd be in heaven. What is the matter with this thing? Uh, I'm sorry about that. I had this new stand that I thought would work wonderfully. Uh, but we'll be there. I think I'll abandon it after this. Philip knew. I was just saying about Vivian, but, but we kind of, she listened to God, and that's what we need to do. And Philip knew that he was simply a link in the chain. He knew that, and we got to recognize this, folks, it's a huge privilege to be a partner with God, to be the voice that God uses to share the gospel. People desperately need him. Philip knew that the only place of blessing is the place God wants us to be. You got The only place of blessing is the place God wants us to be. So I want to emphasize this, but I told you I'd come back to this problem of prejudice. Number four, we must be prepared to go to everybody and anybody without prejudice. I mean, this, this guy was an Ethiopian government official. He was a big shot in his own country, but you've got to realize he wouldn't be accepted in the temple. I mean, th- this man was black and he was a eunuch. And when he got to the temple in Jerusalem seeking God, he would have his way blocked by a barrier that said, no foreigners allowed. Shut out, foreigner. Because, let me tell you, the attitude of the Jews to eunuchs is summarized in Deuteronomy 23. No one who's been emasculated by crushing or cutting may enter the assembly of the Lord. Oh, it's so important we reach out to the marginalized. You know, I know people who claim to be Christians who won't speak to anyone in the gay community, so they're never able to share the gospel with people who so desperately need the joy that Christ brings into our lives. And I've got to tell you, if Acts teaches us anything, It teaches that no barriers must remain between any needy sinner and a welcoming Lord because the Lord's not willing that any should perish. But I love it. You know, verse 3, he says, fully ran to the chariots. Who cares? Ethiopian black, he's going to do it. And what did he do? (laughs) He shared the scripture. This is rerun of last week. We've got to know and use scripture to answer the questions the unbelievers are asking. I love this cartoon. I thought we were going to miss it the way my thing was trying to end the sermon. These guys, of course, with the square wheels are carrying you, as you can see. And the guy at the back is saying, we'll never get anywhere, Harry, if you keep asking so many questions. I'll give the slow letters a minute, And so, where does Philip start? He made a great start with a good question. He says, do you understand? And of course, the man said, no, I need help. And Philip knew Isaiah well enough to get right into explaining it. Love 35, it said he began at that very passage on what told him the good news about Jesus. Consistent. How careful, you know, 
this is my problem in witnessing that we don't do all the talking. Or we try to unload that package deal to that unsaved seeker before they've had time to let us know where they're coming from in their beliefs. We should be listening to and responding to the things they want to know. Remember, I told you that last week. And above all, you should be using Scripture. What did I say? Don't say, I think this, I think that, in my opinion, this. The unsaved need to hear what the Bible says, and it needs to be explained by somebody who understands what it means. And you should be trying to gently move the conversation along, because the central thing you've got to share is the good news about Jesus. But you've got to do it at the right pace. So... And beware of this, and this is a great number six point, the last big one, but i got a lot to say about it. Be careful about giving a truncated, simplistic version of the gospel that ignores their questions, but more than that, that, that neglects to emphasize, number six, the need for total commitment and a willingness to openly testify to our faith. You see, Philip went way beyond Isaiah 53, central though it was to explaining why Jesus came to give his life a ransom for sin. He went on. He talked about the kingdom of God and the importance of bearing testimony to our faith. It seems to me as I read this chapter, look at verse 12, that baptism was always part of Philip's message. He said, but when they believed... When they believed Philip as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. That's a great church, you know. If, if this church is anything like our church, the only time you hear about baptism is in the very occasional baptismal service. And I look at this and I think about this man. Don't forget he was Chancellor of the Exchequer in Ethiopia. He traveled... He had a big staff with him. And I'm sure it crossed his mind. I, I better be careful here. Maybe being a secret disciple will be good because, well, he knew all about the way Christians were rejected and persecuted. I mean, he'd just been in Jerusalem. But there's no suggestion of secret discipleship in the, in the New Testament. And no, this man wanted to be baptized right away. And it just reminds us that that baptism and public commitment was a New Testament norm. You know, if you read your Bible, you don't actually read of any unbaptized believers in the New Testament. Now, I know it's not always wise to throw in baptism as quickly as in this case, but at least you should be asking a gentle question, moving things along. I mean, you could at least say, well, would you like to know the peace and joy that we've been talking about? Be gentle and understanding but Philip got there. And imagine the joy that this Ethiopian felt. I mean, he'd been rejected in Jerusalem, and, and Philip is called away, and now he's in a chariot reading his scroll. Probably Philip's gone, and he reads on, and he gets to chapter 56 in our Bible, and he reads these wonderful words. Can you imagine this? Get ready for this. Isaiah 56. He reads... No, let no foreigner who knows the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. Let no eunuch complain, I'm only a dry tree. But this is what the Lord says. Look at this, to eunuchs 
who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple, no foreigners allowed, no, within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. You couldn't have children. And I'll give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. Man, no wonder verse 39 says he went on his way rejoicing. He went on his way and he was so well grounded he didn't need Philip because he had the help of God's indwelling teacher, the Holy Spirit. And he began to experience what Jesus promised. The Spirit, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he'll teach you all things. And this guy was on his way. And it happens. I wish I had time to tell you, but i got to quit in a couple of minutes. Listen, I had a wonderful uh, fellow converted Jewish guy when I was way back in England as an undergraduate. He had very little background, but he had a Jewish background. He accepted Christ, and he was a card-carrying atheist. The next day, he came to me, very intense guy, said, I was up all night reading Isaiah. And he began to explain it to me. I said, where do you get this stuff? I mean, you must have been in a Bible study. Hey, it happens. You've got to believe the Holy Spirit works. So there it is, six things. But let me just finish with this. You know, this chapter ends with a fantastic upbeat report. I love this. So Philip traveled about, preaching the gospel in all the towns, even until he reached Caesarea. And this beautiful woman attracted his attention, and he got married. And 25 years later, Paul said in Acts 21.8, we stayed at the house of Philip, the evangelist. He's one of the seven, and he's got four unmarried daughters who prophesied. Look, Philip, mass evangelist, obedient man, he witnessed a home too. Don't be one of those Christian workers that neglects the kids and doesn't share the gospel around the table and live the gospel in the family. Listen, this is an incredible man, and he did it at home. And I want to tell you today that the Lord should challenge you to make every effort to do it everywhere. Make every effort to be obedient and courageous. Focus on proclaiming Christ. Be flexible, always ready to follow God's leading. Be prepared to go to everybody and anybody. Use scripture to answer the questions the unbeliever asks and listen. Don't stop. Emphasize the importance of baptism. One of the thrills of my second marriage is when we were paddling on our honeymoon. And Jane grew up in the Salvation Army, wonderful Christian woman. She had been baptized. This is a problem for me, but I left it with the Lord. We're paddling at Delray Beach. Well, that, never mind about that. It's the end anyway. Paddling at Delray Beach. She said, the Lord spoke to me. I want to be baptized in the ocean. God does this stuff. Listen, my computer's off, but i got to tell you, and this is it, and then we'll pray, and the worship team comes up. Listen, folks, out of persecution comes progress and blessing. And God specializes 
in using trials and difficulties to bring growth and blessing. But all you've got to do is trust Jesus. That's a great song. Trusting Jesus. That's all. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this example. Thank